All right, good morning again. Do you have your Bible with you? Good. Luke chapter 2 is where you need to go. Luke chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible with you, I hope that you'll grab one from the pew rack in front of you or snuggle up close to someone next to you who has one so you can follow along as we study God's Word together today. We are going to extend our Advent sermon series for one more week, not because we are anticipating our celebration of Christmas any longer, unless you're one of those types who started counting down to next year already. Maybe there are a few of those here, but rather because we're looking forward to a new year. We're looking forward to new opportunities to serve the Lord in 2020. And talking about the biblical and theological themes of these familiar Christmas hymns over the last several weeks, we've tried to equip you to share the good news of great joy with all the people in your daily conversations. Today, I hope not just to equip you to have those conversations, but to motivate you to do it as well to encourage you to commit to outreach and evangelism in 2020. Today we're going to look at a familiar song that is classified by scholars as a spiritual or a Negro spiritual that is born out of the African-American slave culture. This is a whole genre of church music that we are grateful for. One scholar notes that this song had come from the fields of the South, born from the inspiration of a slave's Christmas. And it was unique in that of the hundreds of spirituals, the work family, I'll talk about the work family in a minute, of the hundreds of spirituals they say from extinction, few had been written about Christmas. There aren't very many spirituals about Christmas. Most of the spirituals had centered on earthly pain and suffering and the joy and happiness that only heaven seemed to offer. Go Tell It on the Mountain was a triumphant piece that embraced the wonder of lowly shepherds touched by God at the very first Christmas. There seems to be much agreement among scholars that John Wesley Work Jr. is responsible for the song that we still sing at Christmas time, though it is highly unlikely that he himself wrote the song. Rather, John Wesley Work Jr. included this song in a collection of spirituals that he published in 1865. The song no doubt predates that and was passed from one plantation to another for perhaps generations before it was ever written down and published. The song seems to be inspired by the scene when the angel announces the birth of Jesus to those lowly shepherds working out in their fields, who then run and see the Christ child and then go and tell about all they had heard and seen. So I want us to look first at that passage today in Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 8. We've, we've looked at this multiple times over the last several weeks. You may even have it committed to memory at this point, which would be great. Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 8. God's word says, In the same region there were some shepherds staying out in their fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. When the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, Let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see the thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. So they came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. 
When they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. And all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds went back, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, just as had been told to them. One scholar says of Go Tell It on the Mountain, this song calls us to do the most natural thing in the world, to spread the news about something wonderful that we have found. And I want us to do that. I want us to do the most natural thing in the world. That is to tell someone about something wonderful that we have found. How many of you have already this morning told a story about a present you got for Christmas? Raise your hand. If you have this morning in Sunday school or in some conversation, even already today, you've told a story about a present you got for Christmas already this morning. Yeah, I have too. I've told the story a couple of times. We want to be even more so telling the world the good news of great joy that is for all of the people. And so that's what we're going to talk about today, kind of posturing ourselves with Christmas in the rearview mirror a little bit, with a new year ahead of us. Let's think about what it looks like to go out and tell the world about Jesus. Our main text today will be from Matthew chapter 28. So go ahead and turn over there. Matthew chapter 28. Another passage that you're probably quite familiar with, but we want to look at. Hopefully it will motivate us, inspire us, equip us to go and share the good news of great joy, which is for all the people. The Savior has been born. Matthew chapter 28. We're going to look at verses 16 through 20 today. This is what God's word says. But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had designated. When they saw him, they worshipped him. But some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this season of celebration that we have participated in. Thank you for all the good things you've shown us and taught us over the last several weeks. All the good things you've given to us over the last several weeks. Father, as we stand looking into a new year, we thank you for all that you have in store for us. All the opportunities you have already set up for us to proclaim the good news of great joy, which is for all the people. Pray today that you will motivate us to seize those opportunities. To devote our lives to the proclamation of the gospel. In our daily conversations with friends and family. As we leave this place and go to other places and other parts of the world to share the gospel. God, I pray that our lives will be committed to the spread of the gospel. For the sake of your great name, you deserve the praise of every man, woman, boy, and girl on the planet. So many have yet to hear about the hope that is found in Christ. Send us out, Lord, with the message of hope. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so we're going we're gonna to work through this like we usually do, starting in verse 16. Notice it says, But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. I feel like I've got to reach back a little bit and give you some context. This is after Jesus has been born, Jesus has lived, Jesus has died, 
and Jesus has risen from the grave. We have spent our time over the last several weeks talking about really that whole story because we don't want to make what is kind of a classic Christmas mistake and only talk about the baby in a manger at Christmas time. We do want to celebrate the virgin birth. We do want to celebrate uh, all this miraculous condescension of God into human flesh. About the humility with which he came to us. We want, we want to celebrate the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we also want to think about his life. How he lived and taught and healed and helped and showed compassion. We want, we want to talk about his life and his perfect obedience to the Father. That he kept the law completely which no one else had ever done. No one else could ever do. We want to think about Jesus' death. His substitutionary sacrificial death on our behalf. That, that this God-man died on a cross that you and I deserve and he did not. But he stepped in willingly and took our place and suffered the wrath that we deserve because of our sin. Took our sin on his shoulders and suffered our punishment. He died on a cross for sinners like you and me. And then they buried him in a tomb. And on the third day he rose again from the dead, victorious over sin and death and hell. We want to think about all of that, right? And, and this particular story, this particular passage that we're looking at today is on the heels of all of that. Jesus has been born, he has lived, he has died, and he has risen again. And now, just before he ascends back to the Father, he gives some command, a command really, to his disciples to go out into all the world and make disciples. And so I want you to know that that is the context of this whole scene. Look at verse 17. It says, but the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had designated. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. This is super interesting to me, and I hope it is to you. It's interesting not that they would worship him. Of course they would worship him, right? He's the risen son of God. Of course they would worship him. What is surprising to me and interesting to me is that the text says that some doubted. Some doubted. Even after all they had heard from him over the last three years, even after what they had seen from him since his death, some of them, even of the 11, still doubted. And I think there's a bit of application here for us in that we are not always as bold as we should be. I think we may have days or even seasons where we're like some of those 11 who are not worshiping but are doubting, who are struggling. And maybe, maybe you're in one of those seasons today and you should be encouraged by what happens next because in verse 18 it says, Some were doubtful, and Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, I think that's significant, especially in light of the fact that the previous verse teaches us that some of them were doubtful. Jesus didn't give them a scathing rebuke, Jesus is patient with them, and he speaks to them, even the ones who are doubting, a command to go and be his ambassadors in the world. And so I want you to hear that today. If you feel like your faith is weak, if you are struggling with some doubts, the Lord can use even you in the weakness of your faith to be an ambassador of his to the world. He doesn't issue them a scathing rebuke. He is patient with them. And I am thankful for the Lord's patience with me because I am often doubtful. I am often weak in my faith. And yet he chooses to use me still. And I also want to learn to be more patient with the people around me. I struggle with that at home. I struggle with that with you guys sometimes. I want to remember the Lord's great patience toward me and extend that similar patience to the people around me. Maybe that's just the lesson for me today, or maybe it's for you as well. 
It says, Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And this is absolutely huge. This is a confidence booster at the very beginning of the Great Commission. And there will be another confidence booster at the end of the Great Commission. And here, the call to make disciples is rooted in the supreme authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. Before he tells them what to do, he reminds them, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. He is God in the flesh. He is God with us. He is Emmanuel. He is the one who was perfectly obedient, the only one who is perfectly obedient. He is the lamb that was slain, and he is the risen son of God. And it is this one who has all authority in heaven and on earth who is issuing the command to his disciples to go and make disciples. And this all makes me think of something similar Jesus said in John chapter 20. Look at it on the screen. In John chapter 20, starting in verse 19, God's word says, So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, this is, this is the day of resurrection, when the doors were shut, the disciples were, for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. And look at verse 21. So Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And that's a big part of what's going on in Matthew chapter 28. He has authority on, in heaven and on earth. Authority that has been given to him by the Father. And this one with authority is sending his disciples with similar authority. This is not some secondary actor. This is not some peripheral character who is giving this command. This is God in the flesh who is telling his people to go and make disciples. We need to remember that because that will give us confidence when we do go to make disciples that the one who has sent us is the very son of God. Look what it says in verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. This is what we call the Great Commission proper. And we're going to spend most of our time this morning here. And the first thing I want you to notice when we look at the Great Commission is the word therefore. When we see the word therefore, we want to always recognize that that means that what's coming is attached to what has come before. This directive is based on Jesus' full authority in heaven and on earth. This directive to go and make disciples is rising out of Jesus' authority in heaven and on earth. The one with all authority is issuing commands. And the one with authority can issue commands. We struggle with this sometimes at our house amongst our children. Who has authority at our house to issue commands? And Laura. Who does not have authority at our house to issue commands? Sophie and Isaac. And yet often they do. And it produces a great deal of conflict because when they issue commands to their younger siblings, what do the younger siblings say? You're not my mom. You're not my dad. You don't have the authority to direct me like this. This is not what's happening in Jesus' life. He is the one with all authority, and he gives the directions. He issues the commands, and we must listen to them. First thing to notice is therefore. Second thing to notice is hard to pick up in English, 
but it's pretty obvious in the original Greek. The main clause in this whole section, the main clause in the whole Great Commission, the main imperative, the main command is make disciples. Is make disciples. It is not go. The command is not go. The command is not baptize. The command is not teach. The command in the Great Commission is make disciples. All of those other clauses that kind of float around help explain how and where and when to make disciples. They all modify make disciples. So let's be clear. The call to every believer, the call on every disciple's life is to make disciples, which begs the question, what is a disciple? What is a disciple? I would define disciple like this. A disciple is someone who trusts in Jesus and devotes their entire life to following him. A disciple is someone who trusts in Jesus and devotes their entire life to following him. This is what Jesus says to all of the disciples, particularly the 11 that are mentioned in this text. He says, come, follow me. Come, follow me. And they drop everything and devote their lives to trusting in and following after Jesus. A disciple is not what I would call a mere convert who merely believes in Jesus. Do you see all the air quotes? A mere convert who merely believes in Jesus simply and solely in order to escape judgment. I don't think that's what he means by disciple. Not someone who merely believes in Jesus singularly, solely to escape judgment. It's not what a disciple is. Nor is a disciple a mere intellect who affirms the historicity of a man named Jesus who died and rose again. You you are not a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ if you simply say, I agree that historically there was a man named Jesus who died on a cross and rose from the grave. That does not make you a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. A disciple is someone who trusts in and devotes their life to following after Jesus. The command of discipleship is the command to come and follow me. That's what a disciple is. So my question is, are you a disciple? Are you a disciple who is trusting in and devoting their life to following the Lord Jesus Christ? Or are you a mere convert hoping to escape judgment? Or are you a mere intellect who says, I agree, historically, there was a guy named Jesus who died and rose again? Or have you given yourself to Jesus, submitted yourself to his lordship and following after him? Are you a disciple? And if so, this is what disciples are called to do. Notice the audience of this command is the 11 disciples. Look at verse 16. But the 11 disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. They are the ones to whom Jesus is issuing this command. It is disciples who make disciples. Fair enough? It is the disciples who make disciples. My question a second ago was, are you a disciple? And if you are a disciple, then it is your job, it is your duty, it is your privilege and your joy to make disciples. And we want to be making disciples who are making disciples who make disciples because this is what disciples do. The disciples are the ones who are called to make disciples Are you a disciple and are you making disciples? He says, go therefore and make disciples. Make disciples being the main command. Notice he says go. 
Right at the beginning, he says go. And I think there are two ways to think about this today. Two ways that I want us to think about this, at least today. First, is we can go in a specific and active sense. In other words, sometimes we go to a particular place, or a particular person, or a particular people group, for the express purpose of making disciples. Right? So, so here I'm talking about specific and active going. This would be like a mission trip. Dylan was talking just a minute ago about a trip that's coming up at the first of the year uh, to Arizona to work among the Tohono O'odham people, a Native American tribe that has very little evangelical presence, very little gospel proclamation, very little gospel work going on uh, in their midst. And yet for years, a group for, from First Baptist has gone once a year and shined a light in the midst of that dark place. That's the kind of specific and active going I'm talking about. So maybe you need to come tonight to this meeting at 5.30 and hear about how you can go and make disciples in Arizona. There are countless other opportunities to do that. So this is like a mission trip that I'm talking about or like a conversation with your one. We've been talking about that a lot this year. Who's your one? Who is one person in your life that you know, one person in your life that you love, one person in your life that, that you regularly have conversations with, that doesn't know Jesus, and you want them to know Jesus. And so you're going to commit yourself to praying for them, that the Lord would open their eyes to his glory, open their hearts to the gospel message. But you're not just committing to pray for them, you're committing to engage them in conversations. And sometimes you do this specifically and actively. You call up your one or you text them and say, hey, meet me at Steam Cafe at 9.30 because I want to talk to you about the most important thing in the world. And you have leveraged this meeting for the express purpose of sharing the gospel with them. I think sometimes our going is specific and active, like a mission trip, or like a meeting with our one, or like some kind of specific outreach event. And in 2020, I want you to find a specific way to go and make disciples. A specific way to be involved in a mission trip, to be involved in a conversation with your one. And listen, if you need help with this, if you need help figuring out, okay, how is a way that I can go specifically and actively, how can I go in 2020? Dylan Luce is your man. He would love to talk to you about the 150 different ways you can go in 2020, specifically, directly, and expressly to make disciples. That's one way to understand the command to make disciples. The other way that we can think about this word going is more accurate, actually, and in line with the actual text, and it's in this general sense. The word that's translated go here in almost every translation will be better translated as as you are going. As you are going, make disciples of all nations. In other words, you don't need a mission trip to make disciples. You don't need an appointment on the calendar at Steam Cafe to make disciples. You don't need some organized event. You don't need Dylan Luce to tell you to make disciples. The command here seems to be more as you are going about your life, as you are doing your normal thing, as you are going from place to place, make disciples. You do this as you simply go about your life at work, at school, with your family, among your friends, at the golf course, on the bike trail. As you are going, make disciples by weaving gospel threads into conversations, by sharing Bible stories with people. Have you ever had someone tell you no when you said, hey, can I tell you a story? Can I tell you a story? 
Everybody wants to hear a story, right? And you can tell folks stories from God's Word. You can talk about your own personal experience with the Lord Jesus Christ. You can weave these kind of statements, these kind of conversations into conversations that you're already having with people you already know or with people you don't know for that matter but come into contact with. What I'm saying is this command to make disciples, to go and make disciples, doesn't have to always be so specific, so active, so expressed. It can be simply as you're going about your life. Part of your identity is a disciple maker. I'm a disciple, so therefore I'm a disciple maker. So when I'm having conversations with people, I'm talking to them about Jesus. I'm weaving gospel threads and I'm telling Bible stories and I'm talking about my personal experience with Jesus as I go about my life rather than just always marking it on a calendar. It's part of what we are trying to do in the Advent Sermon Series is equip you using these Christmas songs to have those kind of conversations, those kind of spontaneous conversations. So as a disciple who seeks to make disciples, our whole lives can be leveraged for the Great Commission. Not just one week during the summer or the spring. Not just some short-term experience, but our whole lives leveraged to make disciples and to fulfill the Great Commission. Notice he says, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. Of all the nations. God's purpose of redemption is global. It is global. It is not local. He is not some local deity. He is the God of the entire universe. Christ died for all kinds of people from all kinds of places. I'll let you in on something that you might not recognize. Heaven will not be filled with American, Midwestern, middle-class white people. It's not the picture we get anywhere in the scriptures. There will be American, Midwestern, middle-class white people there among the multitude of men and women from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, every color of the rainbow and every language under the sun. God's mission is a global mission. Christ died for all kinds of people, and he will redeem all kinds of people through the preaching of the gospel to all kinds of people. Turn to Revelation chapter 5, because you got to see this glorious picture, right? Revelation chapter 5. Go, make disciples of all nations. I could read the whole chapter to you, uh, but I won't. We'll start in verse 6. God's word says, And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb. A lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each one having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. Listen to this. For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be our kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign upon the earth. That's the picture. God's 
plan of redemption is a global plan of redemption. And therefore, our participation in his mission of redemption needs to be a global participation in the mission. This crowd from every tribe and tongue seems to be popping up everywhere when we get a glimpse into heaven. So when we go, and as we are going, we need to be going to all kinds of people in all kinds of places. I'm talking about all kinds of people geographically. We need to recognize that, that our call to make disciples is not limited to Harrisburg or Saline County. We're talking about ends of the earth kind of stuff when we're talking about this. We need to talk about all kinds of people socially, economically, racially, politically. We're talking about all kinds of people. Jesus has purchased with his blood all kinds of people. So let's be making disciples of all kinds of people. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations. Acts chapter 1 says it like this. So when they had come together, they were asking him, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. It's just another way to say the same thing, right? Make disciples of all nations. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in your your little hometown, in Judea and Samaria, the areas around you. And you'll be my witnesses to the ends of the earth because God's plan of redemption is a global plan of redemption. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Baptism is always linked to conversion. In the New Testament, baptism is always linked to conversion, that is, to initial faith. Baptism is the outward and visible demonstration of an inward and invisible reality of an individual's union with Christ by grace through faith. Does that make sense? Baptism is outward and visible, symbol of an inward and invisible reality of an individual's union with Christ. By grace, through faith, we are united with Christ. And that's the picture. We are with him, we are in him, in his death, burial, and resurrection. If you get baptized here, I will say buried with him in baptism and raised to walk in newness of life because your life is now hidden in Christ. You are united with him by grace through faith. Making disciples is much more than merely making converts. Obedience to the Great Commission is more than merely making converts. But it is not less than conversion. There has to be a starting point. And that starting point is conversion, which is symbolized in baptism. It starts with conversion, demonstrated in baptism, and then moves forward from there, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Do you catch that in the text it says name and not names? In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? That's an interesting thing that we could talk about at length, but it leads us to a doctrine of the Trinity, and it speaks to the divinity of Jesus, that Jesus is God in the flesh, 
So baptizing them, that is linked to conversion with initial faith. Then it says, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. We got a ping pong net for our dinner table for Christmas. And my kids have some interesting rules. Like when, when, I, when I play with them, I'm learning their rules. They don't play by the standard international ping pong rules, table tennis, whatever you want to call it. They kind of play by their own rules. And someone needs to teach them the real rules, right? Asher also got a BB gun for Christmas, a Red Rider, right? That was a hit. I had to give it to him before Christmas. That's a long story, but got a Red Rider BB gun. And you know what I had to do right off the bat? I had to teach him the rules so they didn't shoot his eye out. I had to teach him the rules about how you care for this thing and how you aim it and how you treat it like it's always loaded, even if it's not loaded. You never ever point at anyone's face, for sure. And all of, the, all of these things, I had to teach him the rules. Because if he wants to be a faithful and true BB gun owner and BB gun shooter, he needs to know the rules about the matter, right? I'm a, as a good father, I, it would have been a terrible thing if I had handed him this BB gun and said, go bananas. Especially in a world where they know about Nerf guns. Like teaching gun safety to kids who grew up shooting each other with Nerf guns is impossible. We have to do that. We have to work uphill to do that. As a good father, that's what I should do. And as a good disciple maker, you can't just, you can't just welcome somebody into the world of faith, baptize them, and then say, all right, go get them. Good luck. But for years, that's what the church has done. For years, that's what the church has done. In evangelism, we, we've invited people to trust in Jesus Christ and receive the gift of eternal life. And then we've said, good luck to you. We've not taught them anything. We've not taught them anything about what Jesus has taught. We've not taught them the things that they must do, the commandments that they must follow. We, if we're going to be disciple makers, must teach. And we must teach what the Bible says in particular. Part of making disciples is teaching. Teaching them what the Bible says. And that means we, as disciple makers, need to know what the Bible says you're going to be a disciple maker, you need to know what the Bible says. And I know some of you well enough to know that at this point, you shut it down. And you think in your own heart, in your own head, disciple making is not for me then because I don't know much of the Bible. This is for other people in the room who know more of the Bible. Disciple making, that's for the experts, that's for the pros, that's for the pastors, that's for the Sunday school teachers. Disciple making is not for me because I'm not an expert in the scriptures. Let me tell you, yes, you are. Yes, you are an expert in the scriptures relative to the rest of the world. Like if you've been coming here for more than a couple weeks, you're an expert relative to the rest of the world. And I'm not just talking about Harrisburg. You're an expert relative to the rest of Harrisburg, but you are certainly an expert relative to the rest of the world who doesn't even know what the Bible is. And so I'm telling you, if you are a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, no matter your level of biblical understanding, you can be a disciple maker. So don't, don't, Man, don't do that. Don't say, oh, I don't know enough about the Bible to be a disciple maker. No, be a disciple maker. You can always find somebody who knows less about it than you do. And you can disciple them and you can teach them. Don't use your lack of familiarity as an excuse to cop out of being a disciple maker. Use what you have, which I, I want to encourage you is a lot relative to the world. And I also want to encourage you to be learning. Don't say, oh, I, I know more than my neighbor, so I'm just going to stop right here. I can pass the test. No, a, a, a disciple is someone who's constantly growing in their understanding, 
constantly learning what it means to follow Jesus, constantly learning what it means to obey the things he has commanded. So use what you have and continue to learn yourself as a disciple. And notice here that obedience is part of discipleship. You consider that? When you think through the Great Commission, do you ever think obedience is a critical part of discipleship? We don't even like to talk about that very much. He says, go make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded. Obedience is part of discipleship because obedience is the living demonstration of faith. If you believe him, you'll obey him. If you love him, you'll obey him. Jesus says that himself. If you love me, do what I say. Obedience is part of discipleship because it is the evidence of trust. Because if you trust him, you will do what he says. And if you don't trust him, you won't do what he says. And if you don't do what he says, it is evidence that you don't trust him. Obedience is a key in discipleship. So part of our role as disciple makers is to invite people into obedience. Now, that's going to be messy, isn't it? Because how many of you in this room are perfectly obedient to the commands of the Lord Jesus Christ? Do not raise your hand. None of us are perfectly obedient to the commands of Christ. But we want to be helping each other grow in our obedience to his commands, right? We want to be on the journey together, growing in our faith, growing in our obedience. And that's part of what discipleship looks like. It is the clearest evidence of faith. So he says... Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And then he says this, And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I love this part. I love this part especially when I hear people talk about their lack of involvement in disciple-making because of their fear. That they're not involved in the process of disciple-making because they're afraid. They're afraid they're going to mess it up. They're, they're afraid they don't have what it takes. They're afraid, they're, afraid of a million, they're afraid of rejection. They're afraid of a million different things. And I love this because Jesus speaks directly into that by saying, I'll be with you. I will be with you. Think back through the Old Testament and stories you know where people were afraid. The th- three of them that come to mind just right off the bat in my head. Abraham, Moses, Joshua like express this fear in following and doing what the Lord's commanded them to do. And how does he answer that fear every time? He doesn't say, oh, you're stronger than you think you are. Oh, you're smarter than you're giving yourself credit for. What's he say every time to those guys when they're afraid of following him? He says, I'll be with you. I will be with you. I will be right there with you as you obey me. You remember when you're Parents or somebody taught you how to ride a bike. We were talking about this just now. So, so we've got this, these two families that are overseas enjoying vacation. We've got a family from here that's gone to help love them and support them. And the guy from here has taught one of the young ladies to ride her bike like today with no training wheels. And I guarantee you how that went was, don't be afraid, I'm right here. I'm right here, I've got the seat and running alongside, right? Doesn't that give a kid confidence? You know what doesn't give a kid confidence? Pushing them down the hill. Like standing back and watching. It may teach them to ride a bike, but they're still going to be terrified. So, so listen, when, when Jesus says, lo, I'm with you always, I think it is to calm some of those fears, right? I'm with you. I will be with you. Someone, when you were a kid, loved you enough to say, do this, and I'll be with you. I'll be right here. 
And that's exactly what's going on in this text. When we invest our lives in making disciples, Jesus is with us. It doesn't mean it'll be easy. It doesn't mean it'll go our way. It doesn't mean we won't crash and burn. But it does mean we can move forward with confidence because he's with us in it. I'll be with you always to the end of the age. So here are three applications today from the text. Number one, let's be disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. Disciples, not mere converts, not mere intellectuals, but people who are trusting and following Jesus with all of our lives. And maybe today needs to be the beginning of your walk of discipleship. Maybe today needs to be the day where you submit yourself to Jesus' lordship. You put your trust in him and you dedicate yourself to following him. Maybe today is the day everything changes for you. God shows his grace to you in a way that cannot be denied. Let's be disciples. Number two, let's worship Jesus and not doubt. It amazes me that this whole scene is happening with his 11 buddies who've seen him die, and now he's alive, and he's talking to them, and some are worshiping, but some are doubtful. I want to be the worshiper and not the doubtful one. So let's worship Jesus and not be doubtful. And third, Let's go. Make disciples. Go in a specific sense. Maybe, maybe you need to come to the meeting tonight at 530. And say, I'm, go, I'm going to Arizona. I'm going to make disciples in Arizona. Leverage my time this spring for that. Maybe you need to go more generally. Commit to as you're going. Be weaving gospel threads into conversations. Sharing Bible stories with people. Talking about your own experience with Christ with people. There is a, this is a great day to commit to the Lord to make disciples of all nations. Maybe there's somebody in here today who's like, that's it, I'm out of here. Buy me a one-way plane ticket. Pack my stuff in a coffin like they did 100 years ago, and I'm gone. Maybe that, maybe that is you today. And if it is, Go. If he is clearly calling you to sacrifice like that by investing your life in a foreign land, do what he says, because he'll be with you. He'll be with you as you go to the hard places. He'll be with you as you engage the difficult darkness. And you can have confidence because he is with you. Let's stand together and pray. Father, help us respond in this moment with obedience and humility and submission to you. Help us to Consider our own lives, whether we are disciples truly or not. Make us worshiping disciples, not doubtful disciples. And give us commitment to go. Show us where to go, how to go, when to go. Pray for lost people in the room that you'll reach down and rescue them and redeem them. That today will be the start of their journey of discipleship. I pray for, pray for somebody in this room that you are calling to, to go, like radically go, to a dark and dangerous place. Let them hear you clearly. Not only calling them to go and make disciples, let them hear you clearly saying, I'll be with you. I'll be with you to the very end. Give them confidence to be obedient in Christ's name. Amen.